This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. On a sticky summer morning, Evelyn Geyser and I sit beneath a canopy of mangroves along Shark River. We're not far from where the mouth of the river dumps into the Gulf of Mexico. That's the final stop for the River of Grass. It's also where scientists have been monitoring restoration progress and climate change for decades. So you didn't, did you come back here the last time we came here? I don't know if we went all the way to the end. A tower that rises above the forest canopy collects data on carbon, while computerized samplers suck up river water at high and low tide to document salinity. Geyser is shrouded in a netted hood to keep away vicious blood-sucking marsh mosquitoes. But that's not what she's thinking about. It's just so gloriously beautiful. I mean, look at this place. We've just made a precarious walk along narrow planks crisscrossed by spider webs. Oh boy, I feel bad like all these spiders. Oh, just... you know what? They rebuild in like 10 minutes. <laughs> the planks are raised above the mangrove prop roots that cover the swampy forest floor like spaghetti. The monitoring station at the end is completely cocooned by the forest. The way the light is dabbling across the mangrove prop roots and all the birds we're hearing. It's just amazing that you can come out here and be absolutely in the middle of nowhere in a part of the world where there's nine million people just, you know, not too far away. Geyser is a wetlands ecologist at Florida International University. She spent her career studying Shark River and the freshwater wetlands that feed the towering mangroves around us. They can grow as high as a four-story building. Geyser grew up exploring wetlands in Ohio. She spent summers camping along the shores of Lake Huron on the Canadian border, starting in tents before her family eventually built a cabin. She was lured to South Florida in the late 1990s by the opportunity to work in one of the world's largest wetlands. At the time, some of the most exciting new science was unfolding in the Everglades. I came in at the time when we were writing the yellow book, the plan for fixing everything. It seemed to all be very carefully planned. All these different contingencies were planned. All these complicated trade-offs were understood. You know, people were really careful in trying to get that plan right. And it was exciting to launch it. And all these years later, she's dismayed that so little is done. It is not what's happening. It's happening in small areas, but it needs to be that on a massive scale. On the scale that created the problem in the first place. I mean, I still cannot believe where we are. I mean, it's great to see some projects happening. Bridging on the trail and, and this curtain wall in the eastern boundary and more water in Taylor Slough as a result. But we need so much more, and it's so slow. Thank you. 
You're listening to Bright Lit Place, a WLRN news podcast distributed by the NPR Network and supported by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. This watery wilderness once covered most of South Florida. And in this podcast, we're digging into the fight over land, water, and the willpower to save what's left. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. We've talked a lot about the slow pace of work on that massive 2000 Everglades restoration plan, work that could have given Florida a 20-year head start on fighting climate change. officials, those that I know and those whose names I forgot, uh, to come over here and let's cut a ribbon. Where is the ribbon? Now we want to look at progress. We have much to celebrate today. Thank you all for the work over the past decades. All these ribbon cuttings make it sound like a lot of work is being done. Two bridges over the Tamiami Trail have cleared the way for water to start flowing again. North of Lake Okeechobee, restoring the Kissimmee River was another huge job. Today, we celebrate the completion, the completion of construction on the Kissimmee River Restoration Project. And it's been a long time coming. It put the curvy bends back into about 40 miles of the river to help slow and clean water. The Army Corps also finally finished repairing and shoring up the lake's old Herbert Hoover Dyke last year. That's letting them store more water in the lake. Now, Ms. Peyton Lee, a student at Clewiston Christian School and the reigning Miss Sugar, will sing the national anthem. Oh, say can you see The Army Corps and South Florida Water Management District count all these projects as progress, and they are major pieces for restoration work. Water flowing into Everglades National Park over the last two years during the dry season is above the 50-year average, but none are part of the comprehensive plan we're talking about to reconnect the Everglades. The bridges and Kissimmee projects were launched under Bob Graham in the 1980s. The dike work was meant to stop catastrophic flooding. When it comes to the comprehensive plan and that original list that included 50 projects with 68 components, only one major project is complete and operational. That's reservoir and treatment marsh meant to clean phosphorus pollution going into the St. Lucie estuary. We're here to celebrate the ribbon cutting uh, and ceremonial filling of the Indian River Lagoon South C-44 Reservoir and Stormwater Treatment Area. Other smaller pieces are almost ready. One helped restore a small tract of coastal wetlands in Miami-Dade. Another will restore the Picayune Strand west of Naples after it got logged and nearly got turned into a subdivision. Some other smaller wetlands were also restored. But most of the completed pieces mainly have other goals, like cutting pollution, increasing water supply, or changing operations and water levels to stop harming the Everglades. 
they aren't the big pieces that put the Everglades back together. Still, if you're the water management district and you've been waiting for 30 years, Welcome to God's paradise, Everglades National Park. Or governor, on your way to running for president, This roadbed removal uh, is expected to increase the flow of clean, fresh water into Northeast Shark River Slough by more than, I mean, huge billions of guys. I mean, I, you know, they give me this number, I, I don't know that. Everything gets counted as a victory, even removing old abandoned roads and canal culverts. And as big as billions sound, it's just a drop in the bucket when you're talking about the Everglades. For Geyser, it's been a long, hard wait for a win that will actually make the Everglades work again. As a scientist, it's terribly hard to watch declining trajectories and and ecosystem that you've given all the warning signs. And she's tried some pretty creative ways to give warnings. Let me give you an example of that that I think you'll all relate to. This is from a TED Talk Geyser gave a few years ago about climate change. We've all seen the movie Jaws, right? Everything's going along fine. We think everything's okay. But what is it that causes us to get really scared and anticipate that something's about to happen? Right? Geyser had been looking at how climate change had been recorded in the sediment of a 30,000-year-old lake. Geyser's a trained musician who's performed with the Miami Lyric Opera, so she converted temperature data into musical notes. An FIU composer then turned it into this chamber piece. You can hear the rise and fall of temperature data speed up as climate change warms the planet. In the Everglades, she's been telling another climate story. Visiting the mangroves along Shark River year after year to record saltwater moving inland. In some places, that steady march has caused peat soils to collapse and land to sink. Mangroves have been struggling to keep up. You've given all the information to all the right people to act on them and to see declines happening in in places where we know exactly how to reverse it. We've all agreed that we need to act on those reversals, and we haven't. Part of the problem goes back to getting water clean. I keep bringing this up because it's a fundamental point. Fixing the last fifth of the wild Everglades will not work without clean water. That's what the treatment marshes we visited in Episode 3 are supposed to be doing. Restoration was supposed to send just over a million acre feet of new water south every year, instead of flushing it down rivers and canals and into the ocean. But so far, there's not enough treatment marshes to be able to clean and move that much. They're not meeting pollution limits for water off sugar farms now, let alone cleaning the polluted water in Lake Okeechobee. As it stands, only a tiny amount of that treated water makes it into the Everglades. We talked a lot about a reservoir being built that's supposed to provide some of that, quote, new water. But even that won't solve the problem. You've got really polluted water that's going to be in that reservoir, and reservoirs do not take nutrient out of water. It takes plants to do that. Reservoirs are not home for that kind of process. And so um, we need much more acreage 
to clean the water that comes out of that reservoir than what was authorized. Research by Geyser and her colleagues at FIU shows the state needs to add at least another 30,000 acres of pollution-cleaning marshes on top of the 50,000 acres we now have. So when we talk about progress, what we really need to do is look at the science. Because while politicians were wringing their hands over whether to spend money on a pump or a culvert, scientists were building their case for why the Everglades and its mangroves and peat marshes matter not just to Florida, but to the world. My trip with Geyser started early in the morning at Everglades National Park, pushing off from a boat ramp near the southernmost tip of mainland Florida. To get to Shark River, we head down a canal and cross two bays. Whitewater Bay today is flat calm. It's like a mirror reflecting the sky. It's hard to tell where the water ends and the sky begins. Oh, this is, look at the clouds. You're I mean, it's just gorgeous right now. Yeah, it's just so ridiculously shallow here, like five feet at the deepest. You can see pictures and maps showing what I'm talking about at our website, brightlitplace.org. We head down Shark River and make our way to that monitoring station where we started the episode, tucked into the mangroves. Geyser and her lab manager, Rafa Travieso, have been monitoring Shark River for more than 20 years. <laughs> it depends on the wind. The station sits on a platform that's not much bigger than a shower stall, so docking can be tricky. Right now, there is no movement. The leaves are like... I'm going anywhere, so. Yeah, it must be next low time. The platform connects to single boards elevated above the mangrove prop roots, and it's pretty exposed to the elements. One time, Travieso found two pythons wrapped around it. One of which came home in the cooler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gave it to the person doing python research in the park. Mm-hmm. I've been out here before, and I'm always amazed at what the equipment is capable of doing. That is called the auto sampler. So it is a machine that collects, it has, it has a peristaltic pump inside that collects water every 18 hours. And uh, the computer tells the machine when to collect the water. It's one of the very remotest places in the state. Homestead is nearly 40 miles to the east, separated by a sea of sawgrass. Everglades City is 40 miles to the north, behind dense swamps. Nearly all around us, mangroves line the coast in a protective embrace. It's just exactly how you would expect a plant to look that can deal with storms and winds and floodwaters. And it's a fence. Yeah, it makes a fence. That's right. That's right. Mangroves are hugely important out here. They store enormous amounts of carbon. This fringe of forest wrapping around the coast is Florida's version of the Amazon. But even more importantly, the mangrove forests stabilize muddy banks to keep parts of South Florida from washing away. Mangroves are able to build soil rapidly. They build elevation, which combats the rising seas. 
and can buffer these coastal zones from storms. They are built to do that. They have evolved in storm-prone areas, so they have these massive prop roots that stabilize them and the soils underneath them and the whole forest behind them. Building land is like their superpower. If the salt is intruding slowly like it has over the last several millennia, mangroves like that, and they can deal with it, and they can creep inland. They can have their little propagules set root in these areas and grow very happily. But now they're having trouble keeping up. Over the last 150 years, about three feet of soggy peat soil has shriveled up like a sponge and collapsed because of unnatural drought conditions. When that happens, deeper ponds open up in place of the sawgrass marshes. When the water is so deep in these collapsed areas, the mangroves cannot do that. Sea rise is also taking advantage of that lost elevation. Saltwater moves inland, killing off the freshwater sawgrass, and that can make peat collapse worse. We were trying to set a level of phosphorus that would protect the interior of the Everglades ecosystem. Everybody knew that that was going to be very costly. That's after the break. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why Betterment believes cash can be a strategic choice. There are times when the market is volatile, when customers are a little nervous about investing. We came to understand that there was an opportunity to introduce cash as part of an investing strategy and to give back yields to the customer. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Welcome back to Bright Lit Place from WLRN News and the NPR Network. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. As we made our way to the boat ramp the morning we met, Geyser told me about her early days researching the Everglades and the pivotal work that would be foundational to restoration efforts. I remember being at the table with Ron Jones, who hired me. This was in 1997. Jones founded FIU's Environmental Research Center, which became the hub for Everglades science. Geyser was part of the team that figured out just how much phosphorus from fertilizer pollution Everglades marshes could tolerate. Too much, and the swamp started to turn into a mucky field of cattails. The first thing the phosphorus killed off was the base of the food chain, 
the periphyton that makes up a smorgasbord of mostly algae and other plant matter floating in mats on the surface that feeds wildlife all over the swamp. Then cattails invaded, creating vast, stubborn colonies that pretty much wiped out the native plants. You, know, you could fly into Miami on a, on a plane and, and notice um, from the air uh, these expansive areas of cattail, and you can see it driving along any of the roads that go along levees, just as far as, as you can look, you'd see cattail. That day in 1997, Jones was trying to explain how treatment marshes could be designed to clean polluted water from Lake Okeechobee and sugar fields before it reached the Everglades. And here's how they need to look. You know, you need to have the one that can take out the big levels of phosphorus first and then put it next to one that can deal with a little bit lower and the plants need to be like this and the substrate it needs to be like that and the way that we manage it needs to be on this frequency. I mean, he knew because he studied that and how to do that and it is not what's happening. It's Geyser says they knew from looking at other wetlands that phosphorus from fertilizer was making the marshes sick. The feds had already sued Florida in court to clean up the pollution. They just needed to know how much phosphorus was too much. So Geyser spent the next five years designing and building and then running experiments in these huge plots in a remote part of the park. It was untouched by polluted water and filled with marsh mosquitoes. The plots were about the length of a football field, nine feet wide, and bordered by walkways above the muck and biting sawgrass. The work was grueling. Every footstep, you're having to use half your energy just to pull your foot on the mud to take the next step so you can do it again. During the wet season, Geyser and the other scientists and students would visit the plots every other day. It loves to suck the soles off your feet. Um, <laughs> soul sucking. But, uh, you know, I've lost a lot of um, soles off the bottom of my shoes in those places. The effects of phosphorus on the marsh are so powerful that they had to add just tiny amounts to trigger big changes. We added that five micrograms per liter and 15 and 30 to see uh, what the concentration is that elicits those changes in the ecosystem. The amount they came up with was almost too small for their lab instruments to detect. And what we discovered was that that very, very low, barely measurable level of enrichment above that extremely low background level was enough to catalyze a full cascade of changes resulting ultimately in cattail invasion into this very pristine part of the Everglades. Meaning almost no phosphorus swilling in Lake O or in fertilizer spread on sugarcane fields could be allowed into the marshes. Geyser says Ron Jones, her boss, knew that spelled trouble. It was very controversial because we were going up against the interests of the agricultural industry that drives a lot of the economy in Florida. Sugar growers had already bitterly fought and defeated one effort to get them to pay for cleaning up their phosphorus pollution. The penny-a-pound tax on Florida sugar farmers adds up to nearly a billion dollars in new taxes. It will knock them out of business. And the tens of thousands of jobs that depend on Florida sugar farming, gone. Because of a billion-dollar tax, a penny at a time. 
Voters approved the penny-a-pound tax on sugar, but lawmakers never executed it. Meanwhile, in federal court, the state was still wrangling over what clean even meant. Yeah, that's why we took our data and not only published it, but had to go to Tallahassee and use those data with the Environmental Protection Agency's help to establish the reasoning for our very low phosphorus level in a courtroom. Scientists ended up winning that fight, and that very low phosphorus limit remains today. Science like this is one of the greatest underappreciated contributions of Everglades restoration. So we should probably include that on the progress list. Everglades research has helped determine the rate of sea rise in South Florida and what happens to our very low-lying landscape as the water gets higher. The architects of that 2000 comprehensive plan had actually factored in sea rise, just not enough. At the time, estimates called for just 10 inches by 2050. New projections say we may get twice that amount by mid-century. We also better understand how groundwater moves and the risk of saltwater intrusion. The tower that we visited has devices that measure carbon and methane. They've shown that the mangroves swallow up a huge amount of carbon and leave it trapped in the muddy soil around their roots. That far outweighs the tiny bit of methane they emit. That information helps scientists tally the carbon-storing value of Everglades mangroves at up to $3.4 billion a year. The fact scientists have accomplished so much is actually kind of amazing because conducting that research is really hard, like physically, practically hard. Explain to me how how we're gonna. So I I'm I'm prepared to know like am I gonna how much am I gonna sink and how because I'm just taking my phone and my recorder. Oh um, and no, you should be fine. I mean we're uh. This is from a field trip I took a few years ago when I was trying to better understand peak collapse in the same marsh as Geyser is studying. There might be a couple spots uh, where it might get kind of up here okay. um, but I'll go like I'll be walking first and then like you'll be able to know okay so I asked Florida International University student Luke Lamb if I could tag along during his field work to get to the sawgrass prairie where the peat is we need to push our way through a thick stand of trees and brush so yeah, see that that tree right there that's poison wood that you don't want to touch we get past the trees and wade into the sawgrass and find planks hidden underwater that make it easier to walk across the muddy bottom. Without them, the muck can trap your feet. So then this ends, and then there's another boardwalk, but then there's another one here. So if you just kind of take small steps, you'll feel it start to end, and then it'll be kind of a step down. <laughs> All right. All right, now And I'm then on. take kind of a larger step. And then, you got it? I don't think I'm on a... You're on it? I don't think I'm on. Okay. No, you are. You are. Uh, okay. <laughs> Just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> how, do you, so. how do you stay working? Uh, I, I mean, we've been out here for years. Just keep walking. It'll be there.
Lamb is working on his doctorate in a different lab in Geyser's department. He works with a team tracking peat collapse. Because the Everglades is so big, there are places that can only be reached by helicopter. There's plenty of spots scientists have never visited. In just a few yards, we reach an elevated boardwalk. Around it, three-foot sample plots of sawgrass are enclosed in plastic sheeting so lamb can track growth rates and take water samples. Check out our website, brightlitplace.org, for photographs and maps of the sawgrass marshes. To take soil borings, we need to lead the relative safety of the boardwalk. That first step into the sawgrass, we sink up to our thighs in muck and water. As we walk, the water hits my hips. The sharp sawgrass quickly starts to take my radio gear apart. Uh-oh, I... Crap. I lost my, uh... The foamy thing on top of my... Oh. Anybody okay. see it? It should float. Right here, right here. Ah, thank it's you. It's a little wet, but... Okay, I'll squeeze that out. Lamb starts pointing out the obvious peak collapse. And then you can see, I mean... This is the roots. There's the collapse. So it's just kind of, it's everywhere. But it, but then over here, you know, these aren't really kind of and Sometimes I kind of call this place, it's kind of a wasteland at times. So if we get a little deep here, there's not really any way to avoid this spot. This is where I get stuck after I step in a hole. The suction from the mud traps me. Yeah, this will probably be Oh my gosh. <laughs> So one of Lamb's colleagues has to pull me out. Yeah. Thank you. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much the work. <laughs> we finally get to the spot Lamb is looking for. It's on the other side of a low, shrubby mangrove island rising out of the sawgrass. The marsh mosquitoes here are joined by horseflies. Lamb plunges a metal soil borer down into the peat. It's called the Russian, after the Russian scientist who designed it in the 60s. 191. There's also a Swedish probe that I'm guessing is called the Swede. Peats and bogs and tundras built up by dying plants over thousands of years are all over the world, from the Arctic to the Congo. Altogether, they store a quarter of the planet's carbon. It's like 210. Lamb is reading off depth measurements from the Russian. And 96. He could not be happier here. 10.59. I should mention that he can also do a 30-mile trail hike in a day. I do one more. When he first came down to interview for the program, he instantly fell in love with the mangrove forests, the cypress domes farther up the coast, and places like this, head high in sawgrass. Once, he had to wade out of the swamp barefoot after the mud sucked off both his shoes. He didn't care. It really hurt, I don't think. It, like, it looks worse than it is. Like, Did your feet was... get cut up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I have for sure. It looks like just like, yeah, of course. like 12 tiny cats just like stomped all over my foot with their claws out. <laughs> Takes about an hour to collect his peat samples and record their depths. Altogether, it took us about four hours. To me, it felt like 10. Not to lamb. I like to say that I was born to work in wetlands because I don't... My skin like doesn't bump up to mosquitoes. It doesn't like itch afterwards, so I can just get bit like a hundred times and like 
I don't know. But poison yeah. wood, poison wood I'm very allergic to. <laughs> it's the peat under the sawgrass that's a big part of what restoration is trying to save. Without it, the Everglades sawgrass prairies turn into open water and vanish. It's our version of the subsidence wiping out the Louisiana coast. These are the marshes that the wide, shallow Shark River Slough is supposed to revive with all the water we're trying to send south. And we are sending water south, just not nearly enough. We need way more bridging. We need way more areas of the conservation areas ripped apart. There's a whole lot more that has to get done in order to get water where it's supposed to be. And in the meantime... More on that after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and T-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much, Shannon, for that uh, kind introduction. One of the biggest accomplishments for Everglades restoration is just over three miles of bridges over the Tamiami Trail. By the time all three bridges were completed in 2019, that last fifth of wild Everglades started getting more water than it had in decades. You know, the park has ridden the roller coaster of highs and lows associated with this project over the last 24 years. That's former Everglades National Park Superintendent Dan Kimball in 2013, celebrating a ribbon cutting for the first one-mile bridge. Welcome back to Bright Lit Place, from WLRN News and the NPR Network, I'm Jenny Stiletovich. Remember, plans for the bridges predate the comprehensive plan. They were part of the first chapter of Everglades restoration when Bob Graham said he was going to turn back the clock on the Everglades. It took another six years to finish just over two more miles of bridge. And even that is just a third of what the plan originally called for. Now, the plan is to raise the road and put in culverts. The bridges are allowing huge amounts of water to flow into Shark River Slough. But the last two years, slough water levels have usually been at least a foot higher. The Army Corps said that meant conditions were, quote, trending in the right direction. They might actually get enough water to help the peat. Evelyn Geyser says the problem is all the pieces of the puzzle are still not put together. 
and right now we're in a place where certain pieces are done over here but not over there yet and where water can pile up in places and not be ready you know because the conduits removing it from the Miccosukee area or, you know down into the Everglades they're not done yet we need way more bridging we need way more of the conservation area is ripped apart you know there's a whole lot more that has to get done in order to get water where it's supposed to be and in the meantime it's not going to be in the right places or there's going to be too much of it somewhere else so yeah florida bay is still starving of fresh water we visited water-starved Florida Bay in Episode 1. That's where fishing guide Tim Klein keeps testing salinity levels and wondering when he's going to see progress. To get him more fresh water and improve conditions for the fish, more needs to be moved to the east, to Taylor Slough. But restoring that area has been trickier since it bumps up against the coast, where millions of people live. And that's been an ongoing problem. As the science improved and evolved, some of the original ideas for additional water storage got tossed out. Old rock mines got nixed because the water might be too polluted. A plan to use more than 300 deep wells that could pump water back up during the dry season also got dramatically scaled back. Meanwhile, pollution continues to get worse, and land has gotten harder to come by. And climate change is putting even more pressure on the Everglades. That means every piece of infrastructure for restoration has to do more. That one project that's complete and operational off the Indian River estuary, it was supposed to be a 10,000-acre reservoir. But that land is doing double duty. Most of it now is treatment marshes cleaning polluted water. The reservoir takes up just a third. We've been talking about a lot of little pieces when really the biggest step forward was getting a suite of projects approved, the Central Everglades plan. It was supposed to bring together all these little things in one package and put a bow on it. Remember the reservoir we talked about in Episode 4, the one Governor Ron DeSantis called the crown jewel? That was part of this plan. A decade ago, the Central Everglades plan was supposed to be the next big thing. Congress finally authorized it for construction in 2016, but the plan kept changing. Seven years later, the Army Corps was still trying to put a positive spin on ongoing planning. And since then, we received uh, two more authorizations in 2018 and 2020, and it's only 2023 That's Ecosystem Branch Chief Eva Velez. And yes, she said only 2023. So it only took seven years just to get approvals. When we talk about Everglades progress, it can feel like normal time doesn't apply. And that's what's so frustrating to Geyser, despite all the years she's been collecting data and the work by students like Lamb, they still can't convince decision makers that Everglades restoration needs to move much faster. I think that special interests groups drive a lot of the stalls, worrying about negative consequences in small parts of the system outweigh sometimes the restoration of the whole, you know, and I, I don't, I really, I feel like I don't really understand. The longer we wait, the more expensive it gets. And we have economists working on 
the benefits of restoration and it's so crystal clear how acting now saves us so much money down the road. Um, you know, we always think economic reasoning should resonate with the politicians and people in decision-making roles and, and even when the benefits are shown to them, it still doesn't happen fast enough. And that's confusing for everyone, not just ecologists. And it's this slow pace of restoration, especially in the context of climate change, that has Geyser worried. You see all these fires and heat spells and hurricanes and like nowhere near what we're going to see 20 years from now. That's harder to fix than the Everglades. The Everglades is easy to fix relative to some of our climate concerns. That's why people often say if we can fix the Everglades, we can show to the world that it's possible to solve majorly complex problems. And therefore, it's incumbent about, I mean, we have so much responsibility to fix this ecosystem, not just for South Florida, but for the whole world. In our next and final episode, we look at what the slow pace of restoration has cost us. Uh, I'm not in the pews of the church of the global warming leftists. I'm just not. And the damage done by the politics of climate change. That's next time on Bright Lit Place. Bright Lit Place is a WLRN news podcast distributed by the NPR Network. It was reported by me, Jenny Stiletovich, and edited by Rowan Moore Garrity. Merritt Jacob is our sound engineer and composed our original music. Check out our website, brightlitplace.org, to see photography from Patrick Farrell and maps and data visualization by Laura Kurtzberg and Kai Wilson. WLRN's Director of Enterprise Journalism, Jessica Bakeman, helped with editing and production. Special thanks to Vice President for News Sergio Bustos and the whole team at WLRN News. This podcast is part of the Pulitzer Center's nationwide Connected Coastlines Reporting Initiative. For more information, go to pulitzercenter.org slash connectedcoastlines. If you enjoyed Bright Lit Place and want to support more local journalism like it, please consider donating to WLRN. Hit the Donate button at WLRN.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. No deep thinking here. Planet Oat oat milk is rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. Visit planetoat.com for more. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. 
learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little breaks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.